1: Namaste, motherfuckers.
0: Welcome to Namaste Motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of comedy, self-help and business collide. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and in today's episode, we're going to be grappling with the question, can you help yourself with self-help? Now, I know a thing or two about self-help, having helped myself out of a lucrative boardroom career to become a full-time comedian just before the onset of a global pandemic. According to recent market research, in 2022, the self-help market will be worth an estimated $13.2 billion globally. And the top nine motivational speakers in the US earned between them $200 million last year. The average self help customer is a middle aged woman. <clears throat> and millennials are fast taking over the self help market, ahead even of baby boomers. We also know that if there was a self help book that would really change your life, then none of the self help publishers would actually publish it because then they'd never sell another self help book. Hi, Oliver. Hello.
1: Oh, I see. I'm not on my headphones yet. <laughs>
0: Nice to see you in your co-working space. Ah, oh, you need to plug your headphones in. Right. And that's my guest today, the award-winning journalist, columnist and writer of books, Oliver Berkman. Have you got children who are old enough to be your IT department when you're at home or are they still a bit young to be <laughs> solving your problems? No,
1: we have one four-year-old and he, he tends to steal my technology and from- hide it in the IKEA circus tent.
0: I've been a fan of Oliver's work for ages. I must have read pretty much every edition of his Guardian newspaper column that ran for well over a decade called This Column Will Change Your Life. And it did actually change my life. I spoke to Oliver recently from his house in New York, and I managed to park my fangirl instincts long enough to chat about things like silent meditation retreats, goal free living, and why it's important to stay on the fucking bus. I started by asking him about his Guardian column and where it all began.
1: So I think this started off being defensive, right? It started off as like, I was really interested in this stuff, but it's kind of embarrassing. And I think when I began that column years and years and years ago, the idea was I thought I was going to be more kind of demolishing this sector than I than I ended up doing. And in hindsight, it's just like so obvious, right? Like you feel the pressing nature of these questions about happiness and how to live and how to deal with anxiety and all this all this stuff. So It's perfect excuse to be like, oh, it's for work purposes. I'm doing a column. I can read this book that I might not want to be seen reading otherwise. But the humor is also kind of like a vehicle, I think, to make it acceptable to people who feel the same. One of the things that's always been interesting to me is for a million reasons of gender stereotyping and for other reasons like this self-help in general, at least until recently, was very much sort of felt like sort of aimed at women readers kind of zone. Partly, I suppose, because it was sort of, it's been less embarrassing for women to talk about emotional things for various reasons. And one of the things about trying to sort of do this in a witty and hopefully kind of slightly sarcastic sometimes way was that I think there were as many men reading that column as women, as far as I could tell. And so there was an interesting kind of, sometimes it's how you get under the radar of people's defences. I don't know. The other thing I always think about the stuff that I do is like a bar is set kind of low for comment. I'm not am not a stand-up comedian. I could never be a stand-up comedian. I'd like to talk to you about how anyone can ever be a stand-up comedian. It's
0: hard when all the venues are shut and there's no live <laughs> well, comedy. Exactly. But, you yes, know, yes, hey, no, if you're going to yeah, try yeah, it, sure. try it another time.
1: <laughs> what I was actually, <laughs> what I was really thinking was that, that you know, I feel like i'm I managed to be slightly amusing in contexts where people don't necessarily expect you to be amusing at all, and that's the perfect thing right So like an event if people have come to listen to an earnest book reading and you can make them laugh twice, that's kind of fantastic if you're if they've come to a stand-up event. And you make love twice that's a failure yeah well you've literally just
0: debunked my uh, I do a lot of public speaking I make my career sort of at the intersection of business and comedy and I always say please bill me just as a business speaker um, and don't mention I'm a comedian and then of course you get massive kind of kudos for <laughs> for being funny right. and sometimes by the end they're like oh I thought you should be a stand-up and, and you are so yes that's definitely you know um, yeah under promise and over deliver that's a good life mantra but you talked about it being a way of sort of getting in under the radar with perhaps an unlikely readership but it felt a bit to me, so your column ran from 2006 until last year and um which is yeah since we were both at school obviously when you started and um and it seemed um and it seemed to me that you sort of got under your own guard so your own guard sort of seemed to go down over that period of time so you sort of by stealth sort of got I don't think you were ever cynical but I suppose maybe skeptical at the beginning and maybe because you articulated that skepticism and I guess your your, the antidote which we'll talk about is is really all about a a certain healthy skepticism for the positive psychology movement but did you feel that you Attitude to self-help changed through those 14 years writing the weekly column.
1: (laughs) I'm still not quite (laughs) zen about life to realise that the idea that I can be doing anything 14 years. Somebody (laughs) somebody when I finished the column, I got a lot of very lovely feedback and somebody said they were upset it was finishing because they'd they'd grown up with it. And of course that's
0: completely quite possible.
1: Time-wise, I find it weird that that it could be my column. But yes, time-wise, of course, things that go on for 14 years you you grow up with. Uh, And uh, that just is it. Blows my mind because obviously one feels about permanently kind of twenty seven on the inside. Listen, I gig with one, people who
0: are um, who are younger than my children now. My oldest child <laughs> is twenty three, and I fi- obviously I started very young. But I do find that yes, welcome to my world. It's a it's a shocking thing. But yes, so fourteen years, and it was weekly, wasn't it? I mean, you did you did write that as a weekly column?
1: Yes, a few few weeks off, but yes, basically as a weekly column. I, I think that just to go back, to, my, to answer your question totally, I, I definitely kind of surprise myself in terms of what was valuable in self-help. I definitely expanded massively what I counted as, as self-help so that, uh, you know, I didn't have to sort of limit myself to nine-step plans for happiness and could read into kind of spirituality and philosophy and blah, blah, blah. It would still happen, and it still does sometimes happen, that people say at events or in other contexts as if they think they've figured something embarrassing out about me that I'm really using this as a form of therapy for myself and- As if. I'm just like, I'm just like, of course, <laughs> right? I mean, maybe when I began, I wouldn't have admitted to that, but it seems like so obvious. And I think the great sort of privilege of being able to do that column has been because of the readership and the venue and all this stuff, it's, it's possible to sort of be very honest about what you, what you do have to offer a reader, which is I've had the time to read these books and I hopefully have a way of articulating it that's, that, that works without having to pretend like you would in some other venues or as a sort of self-help guru of a classic kind that you've got your life sorted out, right? You can still be honest about all the ways in which you're sort of stumbling through this stuff and the fact that you are still as much in need of this kind of wisdom as, as anybody else.
0: You're not a flawless person is what you're saying, which I think... Certainly,
1: certainly I'm not, but I, think that the, but I think that lots to do with how we promote ourselves in the attention economy today sort of pushes us towards saying that we are right you have to p- present there's a lot of pressure to present this kind of thing or to go the other way and there's a whole sort of subsection of people whose whole brand is that they're kind of like a total wreck the
0: humble bragging and, lot uh, right right yes. and i
1: just want to be neither i, I don't think i'm a total wreck uh, i think i've learned a ton and i and i've got some useful things to tell other people but at the same time it would just be so endlessly uncomfortable to be having to pretend that like my days are uh, unbroken joy and productivity that's just like
0: well, I was what you, that, who's going to believe that i was very pleased that you were quite late in answering my email because i thought well if he was so good at all of this he wouldn't have left answering my email till the day before not that i'm shaming you on the podcast. no don't even get me started <laughs> uh, email
1: is I, i'm getting I'm, it's getting um i think i'm getting worse at, at that but that's not because of yeah that's interesting i think that's because i'm sort of i'm starting to resent having so many emails yeah. now i'm like it's not it's not so much that i don't have the right techniques it's that i'm like why should i answer well you?
0: saved the answer is, very well <laughs>
1: because, well no it's because you know people people have a right to reply from me and some of them are offering me work so, yes you know, that's true and
0: me, i sure. and i and it does tie in, i'm going to talk in a moment about um, with you about productivity if i may because there are a few themes of yours that have really stood out for me um and obviously you do write a lot about productivity and i know your upcoming book is um is all about that do you want to just say what the title is of that book we will come back to it but let's get let's get a good shameless plug in nice and early Sure.
1: The, uh, the title of it is 4,000 Weeks. And the um, I'm almost certain that the subtitle in the UK will be uh, Time and How to Use It. And in the US, it's uh, Time Management for Mortals. So the idea is that this is a book about um, time management, but hopefully in a very unusual way that sort of takes ridiculously seriously the fact that we only have a tiny amount of lifespan. 4,000 weeks is about 80 years expressed in weeks.
0: Yes, I just did Um, the maths on that and it's a bit like the 10,000 hour rule Malcolm Gladwell's rule, it took me ages to work out how many years and weeks (laughs) that was. So 4,000 hours is about based on a, yes, becoming 80.
1: The the idea is just that I I, I really wanted to write a book that took seriously, that, that, that my argument basically is that like we have these incredible limitations on our time and our energy And it's actually way more empowering to embrace that truth and start from there than it is to do what a lot of self-help will have you do, which is basically sort of lull you into the belief that there'll be time for everything and that with the right system, you can fit in an infinite number of tasks or ambitions or or emails (laughs) into the course of a day. And that this actually just has the effect of making everyone more stressed and more busy and less focused on the the things that matter the most to them. So it's it's like a bucket of cold iced water to the head in a way, I hope, but not for no reason. Like not to just say, give up, it's pointless, but to actually say like, This is what you need to know in order to use the time you have on the things that that matter the most. And as ever, I am, yes, telling myself that as much as anybody.
0: Choosing which hill to die on. That's what I always used to say to people who worked for me at Viacom when I had like multi-million dollars of revenue to worry about and everyone would be like, can I do this and this? I'd be like, choose which hill to die on. Just basically do the thing that makes the money, honey. Um, So (laughs) not that I'm a mercenary type, but I did have a job that was about money for a while. Um, Now it's about earning none. Uh, But hey, so I'm going to just tell you if I may, I mentioned the columns that changed my life. So I want to just gloss over a couple and then dive into a couple more. One of them was, do you feel like a fraud, Um, imposter syndrome? And I know that obviously everyone's talking about imposter syndrome. Michelle Obama uh, gave it a big old comeback when she was doing the book tour for Becoming. And you talk in that column about comparing your insides with other people's outsides, which I thought really summed it up well. What's your sort of headline thought on that topic?
1: Well, yeah, that phrase, it's not, I can't take credit for comparing your insides with other people's outsides, but it's a really good pithy way of of thinking about the problem here. The basic problem being the reason that you feel like the only one who has this constant inner monologue of self-doubt and anxiety is because you can only hear one inner monologue, right? Not because everyone else is going around totally confident. I think the really crucial thing about imposter syndrome is, is not to try to I think a lot of time is invested and energy today in convincing people that they're not imposters. There's actually something to be said for understanding the sense in which we all are imposters, all of us, and that everybody is winging it, and that you don't need to try to sort of replace your sense of kind of winging it with a sense of being super confident. You just need to remind yourself that everyone else is winging it as well. So Although there's something to be said for like assertiveness training and confidence and all this stuff, it it can backfire because what it does is it makes everyone else even more convincingly accomplished and it sort of prompts everyone to put this face on, they know what they're doing and you've got to do it in a lot of corporate and other contexts, I get it. But I think deep down it's worth remembering the problem is not that you don't know what you're doing, it's that anyone would ever pretend otherwise.
0: Yeah and I think I guess Brené Brown has done a lot to sort of counter that with her kind of work on vulnerability and shame uh, making it to the mainstream and I think one of the things that I really liked about that piece was that you said one of the ways to combat it is for us all to talk about having it and um, certainly I think that's a huge relief when you I'm sure you and I are both on a similar speaking circuit when the wind's in the right direction and I think people there's an overwhelming sigh of relief when someone comes onto the stage who's a sort of guru and motivational and they go I'm a hot mess but here's what I think, I think everyone goes, oh, thank God for that. You didn't climb up Everest wearing only a pair of tweed plus fours um, and then get back in time for tea. Uh, so um, so I liked, your, I liked your view on imposter syndrome. Um, I also, this one obviously will appeal to me as um, as someone who makes my living on stages speaking and also, you know, uh, sometimes train people to, to speak and do stand-up. Um, and this was a column called Written All Over Your Face, which was about debunking the myth that people are more scared of public speaking than death. And you had a lovely quote in there, one of my favorite, Favorite jokes. I'm a big Seinfeld fan um, and you quoted Seinfeld who said to the average person, if you're going to go to a funeral, you're better off in the casket than doing the eulogy, which I think probably um, <laughs> anybody who's had to do a best man's speech will know how that feels. Uh, so, so tell me a bit about about that one. Um, and this is sort of um, pulling apart the illusion of transparency, right, that we all think everyone can see what we're thinking and what we're meant to be doing.
1: Yes, this is getting a little, this is a relatively old one. So I'm going to be,
0: I'll be testing you
1: scouring my memory <laughs> banks for the exact points. Just make some shit in, up. In,
0: That's the main thing. That about problem, but I'll speech. tell
1: you what I think. I'll tell you what I think about that now. Yeah. I mean, there's a basic sort of problem that, yeah, that everyone, and it's related to imposter syndrome, right? You not only think that you're no good, you think that you're kind of showing it or it's about to be exposed at any moment. And Again, this is to do with the, the privileged access that we have to our own minds there's an old experiment that shows if you sort of if you have people think of a song and then tap out the rhythm, but just the rhythm, they are completely convinced that basically everyone ought to be able to recognize the song that they're tapping out, and almost nobody can i mean I'm paraphrasing the results of this research, but it's much harder than you think if you are not party to the the, the imagined melody and this sort of generalizes and extrapolates right people don't you're not showing the level of uh, incompetence that you fear you are people are not looking at you in large and, and thinking judgmental thoughts about you anywhere near as much as you think in large part because they're wrapped up in their own concerns and not even thinking about you at all, because they are actually as self-absorbed as you are being in having that thought uh, to begin with. There's a very famous old study where uh, university students had to walk into the canteen wearing a Barry Manilow t-shirt. This was considered to be incredibly embarrassing. Um, and, but, I think that's uh, pretty cool. Well, times have changed, right? <laughs> but they, um, it wasn't retro then, but they, and they asked people to guess, to, to estimate how many people they think will notice versus how many people do. It's like, nobody notices compared to the number of people you think are going to notice. And on the one hand, this is a little depressing because it suggests that we're all deeply wrapped up in our own business, but it also kind of is a good bit of permission to just like do the thing you want to do and not worry too hard about people's judgments because they are probably not going to judge you because, you know, you're more concerned about that than other people self-focus extreme social anxiety shyness things like this they can get to the point where they need like clinical treatment but they are a kind of self-absorption that's the that's the strange thing about it even though they have to do with feeling very little
0: there's ego um, in um, in self-loathing, yeah. though, isn't there? As I'm yeah, always saying yeah, to my exactly. partner, no, exactly. I'm like, stop loathing yourself. It's extremely <laughs> selfish. And is the, um, yeah, I often yeah. say to people, no one else knows what you were going to say on stage. So when you come off going, oh God, I didn't say that thing I really needed to say. No one else knows what you were planning right, to say. Right, that right. and the <laughs> fact that people take silence as a sign of great credibility and gravitas. I think once you know those two things, all of us can become public speakers. But the other one that really stood out to me, and I quote it quite a lot in the work that I do, I still do, bits of kind of coaching and, and one-on-one work with people particularly since um, all the venues have shut down and I have time to do yep. that and perfectionism you wrote a, a column a couple of years ago called do we need an antidote to perfectionism and you described yourself I can't remember where I read this or heard you say it as a stressed out overachiever um, or certainly that in the past you've been that and you you said possibly was on a podcast um, that you'd made yourself almost ill with that sort of overachieving um, and that your journey has been unclenching that grip so So I really wanted to um, to ask you, I guess, if you're happy to, on a sort of bit more of a personal level, did you pay a bit of a price for being an overachiever and getting the right grades and doing everything just so? What, What was the sort of turning point?
1: Oh, totally. Yes. And I don't want to just as a just as a preface, I don't want to imply that I'm uh, fully recovered from anything. I think I, I think that uh, especially if my as you say, if my wife hears this podcast, you don't <laughs> want her to be. Yeah. now I'm really easy to live with. <laughs> but yes, for sure. I mean, I think the problem with perfectionism, especially is this, this kind of thing that people are sneakily kind of proud of, right? If you're asked, your biggest flaw in a job interview you're always supposed to say that you're a perfectionist because it's a way of saying even my biggest flaw is absolutely brilliant really but what I mean by it and what I've come to experience it as is just like hundred percent not a good thing and I'm not trying sincerely when I talk about that topic to sort of humble brag and say I guess I just can't help doing everything <laughs> brilliantly I for all sorts of reasons that I only partly understand myself and will probably take hours to untangle so let's skip over them yeah I was definitely sort of convinced that I absolutely needed to excel. It really came, it was university was where that was a big thing for me. And I think I say nearly made myself ill. I'm sure I could easily have been received a diagnosis of, you know, generalized anxiety disorder if I'd gone off to seek one. Um, and that was, the. I mean, it was only the beginning of of realizing there might be something amiss about that. It took, it's been a long, long time uh, to sort of work through it, but um even then, I think I was aware that like there's something that doesn't that's not worth a candle here, right you're striving for some kind of level of achievement that a on some level is impossible or impossible to sustain, and then b like it's a bit weird when you do get the really, really great exam result that you get about two and a half days of feeling elated by it. There's something a bit strange about goals that make you feel very bad about yourself for several years and then good about yourself for about two days yes i know there's a, a bit <laughs> of a dis-
0: i liked the end when you talked about the you know the the, the job interview question um yeah. I, it reminds me of the the joke about um when some when a boss says you know potential employer says and what, what what's your sort of achilles heel and the job interview e says um well i always speak my mind and the interviewer says well i don't think that's a, a big problem is it and the interviewee says i don't give a fuck what you think so <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> not my joke but i do like it <laughs> Okay, I want to talk a bit when we talk about your book, um, The Antidote, which we'll come on to in a second, about the idea of sort of letting go in order to be able to hold on. And um, and someone described love to me like that um, recently as, as if you think about liquid mercury and you have it a little ball of liquid mercury on the palm of your hand. And if you just hold mm. your hand very still and keep your palm open, the liquid mercury will just stay in a little ball in your hand. If you try and hold on to it, it will go through, trickle through your fingers. And yeah. there seems to be a, um, a sort of almost a theme through some of your work, a through line of you've got to really be able to feel pretty shit in order to ever feel good. <laughs> Is that it's it, I'm probably paraphr- putting it in the wrong terms, but a sort of um, yeah, letting go of the quest for happiness and being able to feel really the opposite of happy sort of negative visualization in order to then be able to live in a more contented way.
1: I think that's totally true. And I think all I'm doing is stumbling backwards onto the lessons of most of the world's religions and spiritual traditions and schools of psychotherapy. So it's like, it's not original in that sense, for sure. One way of understanding this, I suppose, is is that it's to do with your capacity to feel, right? It's that the way that emotions and mental life and fulfillment work is ultimately it's just a fact about the human mind right it's not that you can sort of push away all the bad stuff and like climb up to the level of the the sunlit uplands and have a wonderful experience it's that you have to be big enough as a sort of psychological container to be okay with the lower lows in order to experience the highs and i suppose the other sort of abstract way of thinking about it that resonates the most for me at the moment is it's about control and it's about sort of understanding the really true limits of the kind of control that any of us has and what I sort of recognized in myself over years was that I had spent sort of decades of my life trying to kind of to try and sort of get out and on top of my own life so that like I was somehow not in it but running it and not in the flow of time that is human life, but somehow, you know, uh, in 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 a control room somewhere, directing it. And as soon as you put it in those terms, it's kind of ridiculous to imagine that anyone could do that. But I think that's what people are doing when they try to make themselves incredibly productive in most of the Conventional ways when they try to guarantee certain kinds of positive experience with, with, through positive thinking and, and all the rest of it. And that what they're basically doing deep down is that for one reason or another, in almost everybody's case, there are some feelings that they really don't want to feel, that they have been convinced through their, as a result of their upbringing and life experiences that it would like kill them to feel or be equivalent to death to have to feel. And it's kind of not true. And so the more that you can let yourself feel those things, the more you're actually freer to choose the experiences that make you happy and choose the tasks that make that are meaningful to you because you're no longer fixated on this other task of trying to ward off certain feelings that you think would annihilate you if you were to let them in as always with all of this stuff you know there are people who've experienced far you know severe trauma as I have not who who I think it's still true for them but it but it probably needs really qualified professionals to go through this kind of stuff with but I think to some extent it's true of all of us that where there's something there's things we don't want to feel and we behave as the old school psychoanalysts would say, neurotically.
0: And positive psychology is often about, it really espouses avoidance in a way, doesn't it? It says, well, we're going to try and avoid these feelings by replacing them. We'll reassure ourselves with all these other positive feelings. And it doesn't really come bring us hard up against what we're actually feeling. Because in your book, on which I should give its full title, The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, I mean, you look at lots of things from Buddhism to Stoicism. And one of the things you talk about, which really, as soon as you start talking about sitting with the difficult. I know you've had a fair bit of experience now with meditation and mindfulness, as have I. Um, and I, I was quite interested in your book when I read it for the first time. I hadn't done any mindfulness. I certainly hadn't done any silent practice. And you've done two, is it two silent meditation retreats? I know you wrote about one of them in the antidote.
1: Yes, I've done two sort of roughly week long things. There are people who've done Vastly more. Than oh,
0: that. never mind them. There's no room for them on this <laughs> on this amateur podcast. So you've done two, which I think is probably two more than lots of our listeners. So, and and you seem to have a slight conflict experience on the one in the book, but overall really positive. So for people who haven't done much mindfulness at all, let alone silent meditation, I, I know you do. You do practice mindfulness, right? You do it as a daily practice. Uh,
1: yeah, I'm kind of, I'm I'm highly inconsistent. I can, I'm happy to talk about the things I do manage to do on a daily basis like this, but meditation, sitting meditation is not, uh, at the moment, one that is, that I have a very, uh, but I do, yes, I, I try to, and I have done for long periods, and I'm sure I will be better about it in other I'm glad I've made future.
0: you feel I'm glad I've meditation shamed you that's brilliant My, that's job done we yes. I have not meditated today
1: for example and I did not what meditate an yesterday asshole.
0: but I have I don't uh... want
1: people to get the wrong experience oh, well well done well done, I have I did makes...
0: seven minutes and then the the cat was sick but um I was gonna um I don't I d- I'm sure you've heard of the Hoffman process have you heard of it
1: I have heard of it that's about it yes yeah, it's, it's interesting no actually I'd recommend
0: it. It, you read up on it but uh, the Hoffman process okay. which is um it was founded by Bob Hoffman who I think was a car salesman and he he came up with it in the 60s um, but it's It's been quite popular ever since. It's quite hard to find a bad word written about it, which is unusual with things where lots of journalists have gone and done it, I'm sure, with Mm. a view to blowing the lid off it. And by the way, I'm not on commission from the Hoffman process to say nice things. (laughs) But one of the aspects of the Hoffman, um, which was eight days, I did it uh, just over a year ago. It was eight days with no contact with the outside world, um, you know, and fair amounts of silence, but that wasn't the overarching thing. It's all about unpacking stuff from your childhood and your relationship Mm -hmm. with your parents. But I was just going to ask you, having never done that sort of thing before, I found a great peace in silence and everyone really took the piss out of me when I was going to do the Hoffman. They were like, Callie, you can't even be quiet for like three minutes for you to have to be silent for swathes of time. And I was terrified and I found it such a relief. And the biggest thing I was sharing a room, you have have to share a room when you do the Hoffman, which was having had very unhappy boarding school childhood. I was, that was my most triggering thing about it for me to the point I almost didn't go. And then when we, our first night was in silence and I realized how much social anxiety there was in me about thinking if we're speaking, I've got to make everyone else feel okay. So my assumption was I'll have to talk to this woman. I'll make mm. her feel okay. I'll have to be polite and it'll be awful. And then when we didn't say anything, I thought, oh, I quite like having her around because I don't have to say right. anything. So how, how was your response to silence?
1: I, I totally resonate with that because I mean, one of the other things that was striking about the, the two retreats that I've done is they sort of suggest to you at the beginning, not only are we going to be in silence for, for these days, that you should sort of, broadly speaking, go around with your head slightly bowed, looking at your, looking at the, towards the floor, because otherwise you get into this very weird place where no one's talking, but they're kind of like making eye contact with each other and gesturing and, and it's all very strange. So you're all sort of like, your eyes are kind of looking down. You mainly see people's legs and feet rather than anything else in your immediate space. When you're walking around, when you sit down, obviously you're on the meditation cushion. There are a few people, a few feet away that you can just sort of dimly see. And what, what's really striking, and I'm by no means the only person to observe this, is how much sort of camaraderie you feel by the end of a week with 40 people in that situation. How much you feel like on some level they're your friends, even though you don't know their names, you barely know their faces and you haven't exchanged a word with them. And then there's a little sort of one meal at the very end of these retreats where after the silence has been lifted, where people talk, it's a little bit awkward, actually. It's like, I'm not sure you particularly want to. And that speaks to something very interesting about like how much of human social interaction is actually a kind of screen uh, that gets in the way of feeling close to people rather than a way of getting close. More generally about silence, I mean, the thing I found was that once the external silence is, is imposed in that way, you just become more and more aware of the total lack of inner mental silence and what a sort of cacophony my, my head is most of the time.
0: You said you had Barbie Girl playing uh, for the first uh, day. Of it, it's yeah, insane. Is, I mean, that's, that's a shame. Song, that what an song. earworm. No, Terrible.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> but you also fight. I mean, once you stop fighting all that, once you realise that trying to sort of tamp down all your thoughts is not the point of meditation, that it is that it is trying to sort of let go a bit and sort of let thoughts float by and leave again, the silence of the place does sort of then begin to seep into your mental silence. And by the end of a sort of five, six day thing like this, I have both times felt like if I got told it was going to be continuing for the rest of the month, I would be totally fine with that
0: it's almost scary to get back into the real world isn't it we had our phones taken off us and sort of locked away on, on upon arrival and I spent a lot of the week really wanting my phone and just thinking I mean I didn't think about it hour to hour actually very quickly I forgot about checking it and all I wanted it for was to communicate with real people and I thought oh my god that is what they're for all I wanted yeah. to do is speak to people who I love actually that's all I wanted and then when I got it back I didn't do anything with it for about three hours I didn't even turn it on I felt so terrified of picking it up again which was really odd given how much i I wanted it i I drop in at the um i'm near the north london buddhist center if my kids were hearing this they'd be like "Mum, you're such a wanker talking about this stuff but um the north london buddhist center is very near me and i used to drop in and do lunchtime meditations there quite often and being in the company of others in silence whose names you never know and whose faces you barely would recognize is extremely something quite primal and soothing about it i think
1: no absolutely Namaste,
0: motherfuckers. so in terms of looking at what you say about sort of happiness and um, you talk a bit about well quite a bit about stoicism and I guess that's kind of where self-help started in a way wasn't it with the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans and that um, and, and you talk a bit about or well, quite a bit about needing to square up to the worst that might happen in order to take the sting out of it actually happening did you want to say a bit more about that
1: Yeah I was so happy to discover that this was a stoic. Technique that they call negative visualization or the premeditation of evils, rather
0: than being a curmudgeon.
1: Um, well, what I do—it's me, right? I think it is known also. It's very closely related to what gets called defensive pessimism. This is kind of like, yeah, it's it's being a curmudgeon, basically. But <laughs> that it is sort of as a calming, anti-anxiety approach. It is really trying to think through the nuts and bolts of what the worst could happen about the thing that you're that you're worried about and what you would do if that worst thing happened and what you, and this is me just talking about my, my psychology, but, but I think it does apply to quite a few people. What you realize then, or what I realized is that a lot of the time when I'm feeling very sort of anxious and apocalyptic about things, if I really stopped to think about it, I'm imagining that if this thing goes wrong, it will be the end of the world, like almost literally, that there will be no coming back for my entire life from, from this thing going wrong. I used this just this week where we're, we're applying here in New York for the public kindergarten, for our son to go to state yeah. uh, state kindergarten. And it's like, you have to choose between like multiple places, although probably you don't actually get the choice, but you have to say what you'd want, if, if they did decide to give you the choice. And, you know, you see the sort of, I instantly fall into this kind of um, mindset of seeing like the whole of my son's life unfold from, from this one decision, well or badly, um, never being able to forgive myself if it was like not a good uh, setting for him, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, completely losing sight of the sort of concrete fact, if you think it through, which is that like, you know, What's the worst that could happen? The worst that could happen is that within a few weeks of going to a place, you would you would realize that it was a huge mistake and you would correct your course. You would do what you needed to do, you know, and you would have it within your power to do some course correction. And that notion that like every, as you can see, I'm still not completely free of this. I um, <laughs> yeah,
0: see so you're working it through and I'm happy. This will be 50 but, pounds, please.
1: <laughs> but the idea that every decision holds the whole of your fate and that of people you love. It's just like, there's no way to live.
0: Yeah, you really helped me actually with a decision I was trying to make. Um, and but thanks to you, Oliver, I'm still sitting here with a life and a career. It's all thanks to you and your columns and your writing. But your because fi- your final column in 2020, and it really hit me and I was like, blimey, it, it's stopping. And um, you called that column The Eight Secrets to a Fairly Fulfilled Life. And there were two that stood out to me. Um, one of them was was knowing when to move on. And you obviously had decided that was the time to move on. But the other one, which happened on a day when I was really stumped by quite a big life decision was when stumped by a life choice, choose enlargement over happiness, which I know isn't your premise, but it really opened my eyes to what you might do at a decision-making crossroads. So the idea of enlargement over happiness, um, do you want to say a bit about that? Sounds like that might help you with your decision with your son. Yeah. I wonder if it does apply here. I think it, you know, Having him out the house will enlarge, enlarge your free time. I think that's the main thing about kids going (laughs) to kindergarten. So
1: this basic idea here is firstly, we're really bad, famously bad at predicting what's going to make us happy. So you just don't know, right? You, you think all sorts of life choices are the ones for your happiness when actually they're, they're not, it's not going to work. More importantly, I think there's lots and lots of positions, situations we find ourselves in where it, the question just seems unanswerable and you're torn because the person that you're in a relationship with is really great in certain ways and you hate the prospect of loneliness. But on the other hand, there are these issues and it wouldn't be kind of amazing to be independent again, or, or it might be a job and all these kind of turning points. You can sort of argue yourself into total paralysis. But if you ask is the choice I'm planning to make, what choice would enlarge me and what choice would diminish me? I think that surprisingly often this sort of calls forth an intuition about what you need for your growth. So an example for me was, there was a time a number of years ago now, shortly after I'd moved to the US, where it sort of felt like I kind of wanted to go back to the UK. And I know my, some of my parents and some other people would have been happier if I, if I, if I had done that. Well, that's what and they I told probably, you. But yeah. Right. Yes. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think when your kids are grown up, actually, you do want to see them a bit more than they're uh, do threat, you? Okay. I'm it's looking forward letters. to that day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't know what to do, but it, beca- but it was very clear to me, having just encountered this, this advice, that for me at that point in my life, although I might actually be a lot happier in certain ways, if I did that, it would be a kind of a running away. It would be a kind of shrinking back from certain things that I needed to face in my relationship and my plans for my life and my job, whatever. And that staying was a kind of, for me at that point, was a kind of, um, it was maybe tough love in a certain way. It wasn't necessarily going to be all smooth sailing, but it was sort of what I needed to face up to. And so it was enlarging in the sense that, that Hollis means it and i think most people if you're if you're unhappy in a job for example i think it's usually quite easy to tell whether the unhappiness is of the kind that is sort of causing your soul to shrivel away or if it is the kind of stress that is the kind of stress it's good for you to feel because it's going to it's going to make you better at things and you're going to like push through some challenges to become a a more mature and capable person. I just think it's a really useful thing. I I don't know if you, I'm not going to try and make you say what the life choice was but I'm interested in your own experiences with the question
0: yeah well I'm still with my boyfriend so let's just put it that way so um <laughs> yes and it's a it's a slightly reminded me of the sort of um, motivational theory the idea of moving away from something or towards something and even though they might look the same the motivation would be very different but motivational theory is a whole whole other topic yeah yeah and actually well, one of the things um, when we're getting close to being out of time and I was hoping to talk to you a bit more about writing and your writing process so we we may have to do a round two uh, if you're up for it when your books out later in the year but suffice it to say that this new book's but there's been 8 years between the antidote and uh, 4000 hours being published so obviously 4000 weeks 4000 yeah. weeks yeah. sorry yeah that would be yeah, it's not quite that bad yeah you've the, just uh, <laughs> man, the, the, the time limit yeah but no so 4000 weeks um and uh, and and uh, cuz that'll be your third book right but your first book was a was a compilation of your articles so this is your second yes. from yeah. scratch
1: book Exactly. Yeah.
0: It seems to sort of just get into the headline of it, which really um, doesn't do justice to all the work you've done about writing. But it seems to me that your view is very much it's the sort of process versus waiting for inspiration, right? That you come up with a good process and good habits rather than waiting for the day when the brilliant words come to you.
1: Yes, I think that's right. I think that's right. I think making it as sort of mechanical and automatic as you can uh, and taking away the sort of demand for brilliance on any particular day is really helpful I think some people including me at certain times in the past turn that into a different kind of self-punishment and I think it is important to remember that like you know if you're drawn to this it's because on some level you enjoy it and I don't think that people should necessarily be kind of forcing themselves to do three and a half hours writing every single day when it's when it's just miserable I think so I'm slightly tending a little bit more back towards the inspiration poll there because I think people sort of people turn that kind of just do the work thing into a kind of club to beat themselves with. But yeah. And I think like quantity over quality, I think that's like a really useful, a useful thing. If you can sort of get yourself into the spirit of meeting some, some word count or putting in some time instead of nailing the chapter or the idea or the routine or however it, works and, writing and shit basically remember
0: reading an article about elite athletes this is before the two-hour marathon um elite Male marathon record had been broken, and they were all yeah. saying, "How are we going to get below two hours? You know, is that is that going to be possible?" And I remember reading interviews with about three of the kind of likely contenders to do that just before it was done, probably a few years ago now, and they said it's some. Um, it's like your hands in really hot water when you're keeping your pace, um, and you've just got to you have just got to keep it in the water, got to yeah. keep it in the almost scalding water. And I know um, again, we won't have time to go into this column now, but I do remember um, your column about the um, the Helsinki bus station theory, which is basically stay on the fucking bus which I right, thought was, right, um, yeah. was a good way to yeah. think about writing keeping pen to paper
1: and just what, one sentence on that yeah. just not that it's just painful and like and like and draws on all and it's hard to write but also that you end up writing things that don't seem original. They don't seem creative. They seem too much like people who you admire. And the, the the Helsinki bus station idea is just like, yeah, you actually have to go through that to get to originality. You're not going to, you're not going to get straight to originality. Oh, so you're meant okay. to
0: write something good at some point, are you? That might be where I'm going wrong. I'm just like, oh, I'm just turning out piles of shit. It's why is my no, book No, it's the people's taste.
1: Well, this is Ira Glass has said, this is why the radio, the American radio guy that, um, you know, your taste is, usually out ahead of your abilities at any one point that's just natural for anyone who's in these kind of fields so like you know what makes genius stand up Comedy, because it's an area that you're immersed in and that you're passionate about, and therefore you see all the ways in which any single line that you write falls short of that in a way that you know
0: others don't. Other well, I have even mine's even worse because I worked behind the scenes for, as you probably know, a couple of decades in comedy, so I've seen brilliant comedians at absolutely yeah. close quarters before I became one. So I'm so aware of the gap between what I'm doing and what what brilliance is. But that's a whole um, that's a whole other therapy <laughs> session. <Never laughs> I wanted to, um, to to round off by asking you three questions that I always ask everybody on Namaste Motherfuckers. And the first okay. is, um, what would you pick as your defining Namaste Motherfucking moment?
1: Oh, this po- posed me so much difficulty because I feel like I've come across bits of books I'm reading that have changed my life completely so many times. Then I feel that there are all these like chance things like I could have not gone and met up with the friend of the friend in a bar who I now live with and have a child with, oh, I or you I could moment. talk about, I could talk. Yeah, exactly. Or I could talk about the moment our son was born, which really was a totally extraordinary in certain unexpected and brilliant ways. But that's kind of almost like a cliche who is, who isn't that true for. So here's one. I don't, not saying it's the one that, that changed my whole life as completely as anything else, but after I had been in the um, U.S. For a year, a long time ago, I since I came back and forth. So that's boring detail. I was on the staff of the Guardian. I went to ask um, back in London. I went to ask Alan Rushbridger, the then editor in chief of the Guardian, if I could please stay on staff, but not come back to the UK as as the plan for my secondment. Had been, but to sort of find some way to do whatever they wanted, so that I could carry on exploring this country that fascinated me so much. And uh, two things: firstly, you mentioned before the power of silence. I don't think he'll mind now that uh, he's no longer my boss. Me saying that Alan Rusbridger is famous for his ability to not say anything I've in the meeting this. until yes. until the person <laughs> the other person he's he's talking to moves things forward in the or or says like, oh, you know, what, never mind, I don't need a pay rise or whatever. And uh, <laughs> only one facet of his many brilliant facets I hasten to add anyway his response was no and it wasn't sort of delivered in a in a mean way he had no interest in thwarting my ambitions it was just not something that could be could be accommodated at that point and it was as a result of that that I decided I was going to stay anyway which meant going on to a freelance contract and changing it pushed me into a new phase of my work that it absolutely I absolutely needed to be pushed into. And I think that if my actual, what I thought was my desire for my career had been indulged at that time, I think it would have meant that I would have no time to write books. It would have meant that I was writing about things that I was not so keen to write about or that meant much less to me. So that was just an interesting moment because it wasn't what I wanted, but it was what I needed
0: and what I most like about that is the huge caveating so that as and when your wife listens to this she's like you absolute dick you didn't mention me you didn't mention our son what's wrong with you so yes I love the moment years ago that was, that was
1: long before my wife or my son were on the horizon when this first started uh, Oh, another be...
0: post caveat that's um uber caveating but uh, <laughs> yes yeah, so I love the moment and I love the context you gave it thank you um my second question I ask everyone is what is your favorite joke
1: also I could share about a million but um
0: that's more this, than I've got. So well
1: done. Well, on my father's side of the family, is I'm Jewish, so this is always going to end up with a Jewish joke because they sort of the way I love the way Jewish humour sort of pierces people's pretensions and reminds us how sort of desperately imperfect we all are. But actually, it's funny as well. It's not just sort of morals. Anyway, I'll tell you a joke that I think is really funny. It's about. Uh, I've, in fact, I've actually brought. Uh, the book, The Jewish Joke by Devorah Baum, that I got it from. I you were going to show I'll, me a prop. I'll, I'll... I thought we were going no, I'm going to do it from memory <laughs> instead of, uh, instead of, instead of read it out. It's, uh, so it's. It's about uh, Moishi who's driving in Jerusalem and he's late for a meeting and he's finding it really, really hard to find a parking space. He's getting desperate. It's a very important meeting. So eventually in desperation, he, he, he turns his face to the heavens and says, please, Lord, if you will just make a parking space come up here, I, I promise I'm going to be uh, totally devout for the rest of my life. I'll go to a temple on all the high holidays. I'll observe Sabbath. I'll, um, I'll keep kosher. And right then in front of him, miraculously, uh, a parking space. Uh, opens up, though he turns his face to the heavens again and says, oh, Never mind, I found one. <laughs> um i don't know whether that's uh, that's very good people, and your but, timing yeah. was very good which is somewhat <laughs> well, annoying because I, I get anxious telling jokes because i'm not a joke teller in that in
0: that well way. i uh, actually I'm, most comedians um, aren't joke but... tellers either but no you made you, you made that look very easy which is somewhat <laughs> annoying uh, but hey i only ask it to show people that being a comedian is difficult uh, so thank you that's excellent and my last question is if there's one bit of life advice you could give to anyone listening what would it be
1: I thought about this again, so many sort of things that might be kind of funny or surprising, but I actually think the true answer to this question is, would be something like, what do you think a really good friend would advise that you... Did. Jordan Peterson has a version of this in his book, 12 Rules for Life, which is, uh, which is to treat yourself as somebody you're responsible for helping. Mm,
0: that's a lovely uh, way to I put think it's,
1: it. I think it's a, a it's a nice uh, phrasing, but like, you know, I think that that sort of trying to internalize some friend or even sort of ideal parent in a way uh, who would, um, who wants the best for you but understands that that isn't always going to be easy is, uh, is a really good perspective to try to adopt.
0: Or to have a real friend like my friend, Joe, who I go dog walking with and always tells me every inconvenient truth. I really didn't wish to hear. So uh, you can yeah. just all be friends with also Joe. Brilliant. Yeah, also brilliant. Also brilliant. Yes, exactly. I'll hire her out. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's been, I could happily uh, talk to you for a whole other hour. And I, as I said, would love to get you back to talk about writing and a sure. few other things um, later in the year, but in terms of where people can find you, um, I know you have the twice monthly email, the imperfectionist that people can sign up for on your website website because I am signed up for it so do you want to tell us a bit more about how people go about signing up to that and following and finding you
1: yeah that's at my website oliverberkman.com b-u-r-k-e-m-a-n that's where you sign up for that email that's the thing I would love people to do if you want to keep in touch and and keep up to date with what I'm doing I'm also too often on on twitter at Berkman.
0: And you um, have also got your book coming out. When will it be out in the UK and the US? Yes,
1: that'll, be out in, that'll be in July on both sides of the Atlantic. There's a little bit more information about that at the, at the website too. That's uh, out from the Bodley Head in the UK and FSG in the US.
0: Amazing. Well, you've been an absolute delight, Oliver. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>
0: That was the brilliant Oliver Berkman. Now, every episode, I pick something inspired by my guest that I'm going to try. And this week, I am going to try something called the Pomodoro Technique, which is a a time management technique. Pomodoro as in the tomato. And in this case, it's actually inspired by, you know, those kitchen timers that look like tomatoes that people had in the 70s? Well, I remember them. Anyway, what you do is you don't need a tomato timer. You can just use uh, an app or use the timer on your phone. You set a timer for 25 minutes, you focus on whatever it is you're trying to do and nothing else for those 25 minutes. Then you take a couple of minutes break, uh, then you do the same, you repeat that four times. So you've done four 25 minutes stints, and then you permit yourself a slightly longer break. And it is meant to be a way of being very productive and managing your time well. So as someone who's found it quite hard to do my writing during lockdown, I'm going to see if that helps me. Um, And that is it for the show this week. Thanks again so much to Oliver for joining me. You can find links to his website, social media, and all the other good stuff in the show notes. Um, Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beater, With music by Jake Yap and produced by Mike Hansen for Pod People Productions. If you've liked today's show, please subscribe now on your favourite podcast app and also rate and review the show. Not because I'm needy and crave external affirmation although those things are true but because it does help other people find the show join me next time when I'll be talking to the American comedian storyteller and actor Desiree Birch I was bashing my head against a wall until it was bloody and at some point the wall moved away and that episode is available now I'm Callie Beaton until next Monday motherfuckers
1: Ball.